Exodus 17, I invite you back to that passage that we read. We've entitled it, Water Shortage Answered. The Water Shortage Answered. Let's just unite our heart together again as we come to the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank thee, O God, for thy presence with us that makes the feast. We thank the Lord for the day of rest and gladness. We're glad, Lord, that we're able to come and meet uh, as individual families, as a collective congregation, even in this house. And Lord, we, we just take a moment to thank Thee for Thy blessings upon the congregation these, these 40 years. And oh God, we pray that the best would yet to come. We pray, Lord, that Thou would look in favor upon us. And oh, that Thou would build us up spiritually, numerically. Oh God, do a work amongst us, we pray. Do your work this morning, Lord. Pray, Lord, that thou would speak to our hearts. Thou would give us a little word of challenge or comfort or whatever the need might be. Pray, Lord, to that end, thou would fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give me, Lord, utterance in the Holy Ghost that we might preach as us. And thus saith the Lord, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. While Joseph is spared from the pit, he soon finds himself ensnared in the dungeon. While David is to leave the cave of Adullam, he soon is glad that he's able to flee and to hide himself in the caves of Engedi. While Abraham faces a trial in the land of Egypt and escapes with the life and with the purity of his wife Sarah still intact, he faces the same affliction in the land of Gerar. What is the truth that all of those examples illustrate? It's simply this, men and women. That the afflictions and the trials that are faced and overcome one day, they soon reappear again. And they have to be overcome and they have to be conquered again. Just like the weeds that reappear in the garden. And so it is with the weeds of sin and of evil. The believer may have gained the victory uh, one day and rejoice in God's grace, but before long, that same besetting sin reappears. And the battle has to be refought again and again and again. And so it was for Israel as we find them in the wilderness journeys. They had come to Marah. They had found that the waters were bitter and they could not be drunken. But relief was close at hand as God was to show Moses a tree after which that tree being cast into the waters they were made sweet. And yet as we go a little further in their journey into chapter 17 and I want you to notice particularly before we go any, any more of a distance that they were in the way in which God had commanded. Look at the words of verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin. There is a natural connection back to chapter 16. They come into the wilderness of sin. It's there that they cried out for food and God gave them the manna. And now that congregation move on from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord. They're in the will of God. They're not going in the wrong direction. They're going as according to the commandment of the Lord. Matthew Henry said, we may be in the way of our duty, and yet we meet with troubles. Isn't that so true? 
And in obedience to God's word and the way in which they were commanded to go, they come through to a place called Rephidim. The stops previous to this were uneventful. And therefore they're not mentioned. They are enumerated in the book of Numbers, but they simply are encapsulated within that little phrase after their journeys. So there's other little places that they came to, but there's, uh, they were uneventful, but they come now to this place called Rephidim. And at this place again, the same trials about to face them. A place whose meaning gives the idea of spreading a bed or a place of comfort was proving to be anything but, for it was a desert. Understand here, child of God, that the battle is ongoing, and yet we are instructed that even our trials and afflictions have a purpose for us. For it is during such times that the hidden vileness of the heart is best disclosed, and the vast richness of the Savior's grace is best experienced. As to the location of Rephidim, it's situated... It is understood at the northern foot of the mountain range that was called Mount Horeb. They're getting very close to Sinai now. The, the two names are interchangeable. Here's a place in the northern foothills of that mountain range. And as we look at these verses, we're brought to see something, I believe, of the richness of Christ as the water shortage is answered. Want you to notice the condition here that is illustrated to us, the nation of God were en route, you know, to the promised land. They had witnessed the power of God and deliverance out of the house of bondage. But before long, they're given to the murmuring spirit. And what accompanies it are the doubts of what God had promised to them in his word. And they come to this place called Rephidim and nothing has changed. They again are facing disappointment. They again in their own hearts and minds are facing possible, probable death. For consider the the condition that prevailed here. It's one of thirst. Look at the words of verse 3. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is it that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? They murmured against God's servant because of lack of water. And they plead with him that water be given to them, thinking that he would be unable to meet their request. The basic requirement was essential for their well-being. They're in a desert, men and women. They're in a wilderness here. There's, there, there, there's not the tops of water that we have uh, at hand. They're in a desert of no water. And there's millions of people. And this is, again, them facing, as it were, a real crisis And it ought to be seen that this thirst included their livestock, their cattle. And I don't need to maybe explain to a farming community, if you know anything about cattle at all, or if you have a lot of cattle about you, you know that when the truck is dry, you know when the winter mornings are there and the frost covers the water and they can't get at it, there's a roaring. The cattle will tell you. They'll tell you that they're thirsty because they start bawling. And this scene that is before us is anything but but being pleasant because the people are thirsting and there's a murmuring and the cattle, they're bawling continuously. 
And so it is to this day in the spiritual sense. The need is all apparent among our fellow kinsfolk. For that which many people are found drinking of are the fountains of this world which can never satisfy. The refreshment of the world's entertainment is never lasting. It leaves a dryness. It leaves a void and the need for something else. And maybe you are that person that's following the, the cisterns of this old world. I want to tell you today, they'll never satisfy your soul. And today as we look at an unbelieving world and souls hankering after that, whatever is the latest craze, their condition could be described as thirsting. They're thirsty for that which will satisfy. And that has been so for every generation without Christ. The broken cisterns. The hymn writer speaks about ah, the field. And they will feel They'll continue to fail. And you know, sadly, there's a similar sort of thirsting even found among many church-going people. Because what they've been served up is not the refreshing springs of water from the throne of God. In many cases, it's a form of social words. How to get on better in life. How to be a good neighbor. They're not brought to the everlasting springs of God's mercy and salvation. They're not brought to consider the fountainhead of all blessings, which is Christ. And the danger is, men and women, that we become conditioned into that same mode. And where my people love to have it so. Have you ever read that in the Scriptures? My people love to have it so. They don't want the preaching. They don't want the doctrine. They don't want God's salvation. They just want their ears tickled. That's an accurate description of many who profess to be God's people today. Oh, but preacher, that could never happen to this church. It could never happen where people don't want the meat of God's word. They don't want to be refreshed with the living water from the Lord. Where they desire less teaching, less preaching, less meaty doctrine and more entertainment. That could never happen to the free church. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. You know why? If you turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at the words of verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3. And Paul's writing to Timothy the preacher. Verse 2 he says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. A woman said to me in the street at the open air yesterday morning, there's a time and place for this and it's not the street. Well, there's the answer. Preach the word in season, out of season. But he goes on and says, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned on to fables, always wanting to hear something new, but never meditating. They shall turn their ears onto fables. We're in that day. There already is that spirit abroad that wants preaching that appeals to the carnal flesh. 
speak unto us smooth things. We don't want to hear preaching about sin or judgment or wrath of God. Just speak unto us smooth things. Need to be aware. Yes, we be, con- be conditioned by what others are being served up with. The condition that prevailed was one of temptation. Notice verse 2. Wherefore the people that chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? You see, their murmurings led to yielding to the temptation of not only verbally wrangling and rebuking God's servant, but more especially it led to them tempting the Lord. And the full extent of that temptation or that tempting of the Lord is expounded for us in the words of verse 7 by means of the question. Because it says in verse 7, because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's how they tempted the Lord. By the circumstances that they were experiencing, the proneness of their heart was to question both God's providence as well as God's presence. God's power and God's presence. They tried his providence, whether he was really in control of things or not. They tempted his power to meet them at the point of their need. And his promises, made particularly to the land of Israel, or to the people of Israel, because he would deliver them, and he would deliver them out of Egypt, that he would bring them into the land that flowed with milk and honey. when in fact they had every sufficient evidence already of both his presence among them, cloudy pillar, and also of his power to deliver and to supply their every need. They had just come across the Red Sea and dry land. They had just been fed with a manna. And how often when there's a dearth, how often when there's a dryness spiritually abounding in what can be described as very much the day of small things, these hearts of ours are all too prone to tempt the Lord, to question His promises, to question His presence, even with us, to embrace something of the world's thinking and putting doubt over whether God is really in control of all things or not. Men and women, it's not, boys and girls, young people, it's not a sin to be tempted. For even the very Lord of glory was tempted in all points like as we are. But it is a sin to yield to temptation. And you know, just maybe we'd do well to to turn over to to the temptations of the Savior in the wilderness. You come back over to Matthew chapter 4. Remember how he was tempted of the devil. I want you to just see how he answered in, in, in one of these occasions. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth on him the pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. The devil wanted Christ to prove the Scriptures true to prove the care of God for him. How indeed was the Son of God. The devil has found a quote scripture here. Lord, cast yourself down and prove those scriptures. Prove that God the Father cares for you. That the angels will be given charge over thee. But men and people, I want you to see that more proofs weren't needed. 
And that's why the Savior answers as he does in verse 7. Jesus said unto him, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Didn't need more evidences. Didn't need more proofs. We should not tempt God to prove his love or his care or his power. He's already proven these things beyond doubt at Calvary. To tempt the Lord like Israel is just plain unbelief. Simple as unbelief. Notice the condition was one of threatenings. Verse 4, Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. What can we do in the face of such temptation and trials? We do what Moses did. He sought the refuge of the mercy seat in prayer. And in the, ba- the basis of his plea for the power of God to intervene was his own inability to do anything. And the reality that such was their anger that almost they certainly were going to stone him to death. Dear people, when God is left out of man's reasoning, when God is not in all their thoughts, then do not be surprised that life becomes very cheap. And such threats are common and such threats are carried out. Did they not do the same to the very Lord of glory? I read in John chapter 10, for example, in the words of verse 30. It says, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They took umbrance of that word. That word actually brings us back into the Old Testament, Zechariah. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered him, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They were ready to stone the Christ of God. The Lord had already manifested his power and his miracles in their midst, and yet they threatened to stone him because of words that they believed was blasphemous. And the same was true in the time of Moses. The Lord God had delivered them out of Egypt by a powerful hand. He had caused them to have the water at Marah. He had given them bread baked from the ovens of heaven as manna fell into the camp. What cause had they then to tempt the Lord or to doubt his word and his goodness, which they already had experienced in abundance? And we might just apply it very much to our own hearts. What cause are we to doubt the power and the presence of God, the promises of his word for the battles and for our pilgrim journey onto that heavenly land? We have no need, men and women. God has proved to me, he has proved to you many, many times over, not only his power, but his presence. And don't be caught up with unbelief as Israel was. You'll see here also the command that is issued. How gracious is the Lord. We are, as it were, standing in holy ground as we listen to the answer that God gives to Moses, his servant. How precious a place is the throne of grace for the troubled soul. For it's here that the fears are allayed. And there is the promise of the need of the people being met. And it all comes in the form of a command. You'll find it in verse 5. The Lord said, go on before the people. 
And take with thee of the elders of Israel thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. The command was positional. What did God say to Moses? He's to take up his place before the people. He was to go on before them. Even though they had spoke of stoning him, he wasn't to divert to the left hand or to the right hand. His position was one of leading the people, of directing them as God had commanded, and especially so in the midst of this great trial and affliction. The great principle for Moses was for him to go on. He wasn't to quit. He wasn't to give up. Moses, go on. Go on before the people. And dear child of God, the same can be applied to ourselves. It's never the Lord's will to go back. Never. The Lord never saved us out of the house of bondage of this world and of Satan for us to go back there again. Speak with the children of Israel that they go forward. There's another text in the context of the journeys of the, of the nation of Israel. It's not the Lord's will that we wander about the wilderness of unbelief, but having saved us, it is this desire that we might go on. You take time when you go home to go to uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and you see the armor of the Lord given to the child of God. There's no armor for the back. The soldier doesn't turn, turn his back. He goes on. The Lord's will is for his church to go on. His will for the church of Market Hill here is to go on. Despite the dearth, despite the day of small things, despite the discouragements that are all abroad, but that we might go on, that we might progress and grow, that the work of sanctification might deepen in our lives so that we are conformed more and more unto the image of Christ. The incentive to go on is found in the position of Christ himself. He was one who came into this world and taken upon his divinity, our humanity. He was to go on before the people. He set his face to do the Father's will. And that decreed one day that he would lay down his life on that old cross at Calvary. Oh, the people spake of stoning him, yet he still went on until he had finished the work. And the third day he rose again from the dead. And where is Christ positionally this morning? He's gone on before. He's gone on before his people into heaven. He's returned to the glory that he had with the Father so that his people might follow on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a great chapter of the resurrection. And I just want to read two or three verses here. Look at verse 20. But, or listen to this. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Because Christ conquered death in the grave. Then all in Christ shall also one day conquer death and the grave. You see, he has gone on. He's the first fruits. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after they that are Christ at his coming. He's gone on before. He said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. John chapter 14. He's going on. Tell me, is this where you're heading? Because positionally, you are in Christ. You see, men and women, what the verse I read there, verse 22, that, that divides this congregation. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either in sin, still, or you're in the Savior. Positionally, where are you even this morning? Yet in Christ or yet in your sin lost and the danger of the caverns of the damned. You'll notice also the command was particular. Verse uh, 5 tells us that. Or verse 6, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. You see, the Lord doesn't deal in generalities. We're so guilty of that. We're so guilty as God's people in prayer. We can pray in a very general sense and instead of being specific. Moses specifically had to take the elders with him and the rod that we find there in the words of verse 5. That rod that he had stretched out to see the Red Sea parted. The elders would be witnesses of what was going to take place. They would attest of the miracle of God and of the certainty of God's presence amongst them. Oh, that in these days that our elders, that our ministers, my colleagues, would testify of the powerful moving of God's Spirit among the people. That I would see that. We might be witnesses of great things. Because that's what these elders were to do and see even at this time. The rod of Moses is mentioned there. The rod has often uh, in the past been used in judgment. Before Egypt, before the River Nile, before Pharaoh, etc. Now the people were to understand the rod was not being used in judgment or in wrath. But uh, that it would be for their goodness. How like Calvary. The work of the cross was not only for the judgment of sin. And that's what's forgotten about many modern preachers today. They don't see the judgment of God at Calvary. But it was for the judgment of sin. It was the appeasing of the wrath of a holy God. But the atoning death of Christ on the cross was for the redemption and for the eternal good of all who will come unto him and be saved. This command was a demonstration of the power of God. I've read to you the words of verse 6, Behold. Just stop and think of what the Lord commands here, what he says. He says, I'll smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it. From the most unlikeliest of source, God would provide the need for his people. The promise was that they would have water, but it wouldn't come from a fountain of water that he would show them, but the power of God would be seen and the water would come forth from the rock. And dear people, the power of God is wonderfully seen in salvation. When God decreed that it should be purchased through the most unlikeliest of sources, for he would give of his only begotten Son he would be born in a lowly manger. He would be despised and rejected of men. He would grow up in a despised place. And his public ministry would culminate in the crucifixion on a Roman gibbet of wood. And through his death, he would purchase eternal life. 
the most unlikeliest of source, but because outflowed from his death and resurrection, springs of living water of which all that partake shall never thirst again. And of that work that Jesus began both to do and to teach before he was taken up, he handed it on to lowly fishermen and such like to evangelize the world. And for our encouragement, God still uses the lowly. And he still uses the most unlikeliest of men. He uses the foolish and the weak things of this world that no flesh should glory in his presence. Wonder are we being obedient to his great command and commission? Are we going forth to do the particular work that he has given you to do? God has given you a particular work that I can't do. Vice versa. And you, do, you, you seek to do that by the grace of God, praying that you might see the power of God in it. The command here was issued, but I want you to see, really getting to this part, I want you to see Christ identified. You'll have to come with me to 1 Corinthians 10. Did you ever hear the expression that the Scriptures are the best commentary of themselves? You've heard me, and you will hear me quote different men who are commentaries. But the scriptures are the best commentary. And Paul's writing to the believers in Corinth and he takes them back in their history to the Old Testament times and he takes them back to this place. In verse 1, they've passed through the sea. They're with Moses. Verse 3, they did all eat the same spiritual meat. We looked at that. The manna. Verse 4, did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. There's a great help as we come to understand this passage. Divine revelation informed Moses where the saving rock was to be found and what he was to do. It identifies the rock as Christ. He possesses all the properties of a rock, of course. His strength, its uh, immovability, that support upon which we can rest are all upon. But as in salvation, it's not enough just to know about the rock. We need to be instructed that Christ is the answer and how he can save us. God revealed to Moses that he would stand upon the rock in Horeb. Does that not speak to us of the incarnation of Christ? He came down to this world of sin to be our Savior, to dwell amongst men in a dry and in a barren land spiritually. But he came so that he might provide that spiritual water without which there is no life. And that Christ is to be seen in this passage is all the more evident when we consider that that rock, Moses, you are to smite it. It was a smitten rock. Moses was to smite the rock. Verse 6. Oh, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock. And there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. Smite the rock, Moses. Water will be given. Now, come to Calvary. Consider what it meant for God's Holy One to bear away our sin, to purchase redemption. 
for his people. The, the prophet Isaiah sums it up in his great chapter 53 of the cross. Because verse 4 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. The soldiers were to smite the Christ of God with the palms of their hands. When he was blindfolded. But more than that, the Savior for the great love wherewith he had loved his own was to endure the smiting of God the Father as he bore the weight of God's law on our behalf. The law cried against us. A holy God must punish sin. And before the water came, the water of salvation, that rock had to be smitten. Because Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And Isaiah said it, he's smitten of God. The rock that we are reading about in Exodus 17 was Israel's substitute. As they had sinned in their right rage against God, as they had tempted the Lord in his power and his mercies, that rock was smitten. And Christ, as the sinner's substitute, was to bear the punishment of all the sins of his people, smitten of God, shedding his own precious blood, laying down his life before salvation could be experienced. Without Calvary, you see, men and women, there is no life-giving stream. Without Calvary, there is no gospel to preach. And the rock was sufficient to meet their every need. Having been smitten, the water was to flow from the rock. It was sufficient to satisfy the murmuring people. It was there sufficient to satisfy their livestock and the cattle. God made provision for them, life-giving water, even though they didn't deserve it, and it was water freely given. And so, you know, is the provision of God's salvation. The Old Testament speaks of it, Isaiah 55 and 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Without money, without price. Freely given. But I take you to the Lord himself. You remember, he met the woman of Samaria by the well. You come with me to John 4, just in closing. John chapter 4 I don't really need to give you the background of this woman. She, she was well known in the city as a sinner. I like the words of verse 4. He must needs go through Samaria. That's not just to fill a wee bit of a white page in your Bible. That indicates something different. You see, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And to the extent that they would circumvent the land to get to the other side... But it says here the Savior must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he had a meeting with a woman by a well from eternity past. Has he met with you? 
Thank God he's met with many of you. And you can be able to say, well, you know, my Samaria or my place, my well, was the bedroom or it was the backseat of some mission. Well, the Lord had a meeting with a woman here. And that's why he had to go through Samaria. That's why he came to what was known as Jacob's well. And it's about the sixth hour. That again is different. It's a wee bit extraordinary because the ladies would have gone for the water early morning before the sun rose. But we're at noonday here. Why? Maybe because this woman was very conscious of what was being said about her. And she didn't want to mingle with the others. And so she comes alone and she meets with this man who says to her, give me to drink. You see verse 10. Well, back up just verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asked ask this drink of me, which I am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She understood it. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God. I'm saying to you, the water's free, you see. It was free to the nation of Israel as it came out of the rock. And the Lord says, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that said to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Freely given. Freely received. The water... Don't leave John 4 just a moment, because I just want to close with it. But the water is likened that came from the rock a river. The psalmist gives us that piece of information in Psalm 105 and verse 41. I'll just read it to you. He opened the rock and the waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. The Lord doesn't do things by half. The water gushed out. It ran like a river. You see, dear people, it was sufficient. And Christ willingly gave his life that through his death he might obtain eternal life and that we might drink of that everlasting spring and the blessings from which shall never run dry. His death on the cross is sufficient. It was satisfactory before God. That's why he raised him again the third day from the dead. His sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God's justice against sin. It was sufficient to set his people free. His death is sufficient to quench the thirsting soul of any man, woman, boy, girl, or young person. Any who will come unto him and be saved. You see verse 14 of John 4. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And you see, when the woman heard that, she said, Sir, give me this water. Are you thirsting this morning? What this world is throwing at you and offering to you? A man or woman, young person, come to Christ by faith and be satisfied. 
he saves completely. He satisfies. And if you've left off and you're in that dry, barren, bypass meadow, and come back to the Lord. And your soul will be refreshed and you'll be satisfied again. The water shortage answered. It's Christ. Christ was the rock. May the Lord bless his word to each of our hearts this morning. For his own name's sake, there's a wee piece we haven't dealt with there and we'll have to come back to it. But the Lord write his word on our souls even today. 572 will uh, just close our, our, our service by singing, A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where rivers of pleasure I see. Page 407, that is number 572. Let's stand as we sing. Savior is Jesus my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in
Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We bless Thee, Lord, for the power of God, the presence of God was shown again to Israel. We thank the Lord that the waters gushed from the rock, and the rock that followed them was Christ. Oh, we thank Thee today for the rock that is in this dry and thirsty land. We can say, Lord, He is sufficient. He's sufficient to save the vilest sinner. He's sufficient to meet every one of his children at the point of their need. Oh God, we bless thee today. We have a wonderful Savior. Lord, teach us. And we thank the Lord we're hidden in that rock. Lord, we pray that thou would keep us near the Savior in these days. We might drink of that everlasting spring and never be thirsty. Part us with thy blessing. Speak on when the preacher's voice is silent, especially to any that's not saved. Bring them, Lord, to taste and see today that the Lord is good. Bring us back again tonight, and I will, we ask in our Savior's precious name. Amen.